Welcome to the Experiencer Group Roundtable. I'm Jake King, along with my Experiencer Group co-founders, Stuart Davis and Kirsten Blackburn. Hello, everyone. This is our 69th event since beginning in February, but it's only our second public one. So that's that, a, that's amazing. Is that wild, it, it's yeah. quite incredible. It feels like we just started doing this like yesterday. Right. And it's like, okay, so if it's our 69th and it's our second public one, does that mean that we're just like super private people or does it mean that we're coming out of our shell <laughs> or both? Uh, what do you say? Both made a full or half empty. <laughs> right. <laughs> now, are you including support meetings in that, Jay, or is this? I am. Yeah. I am. Yeah. For you, Ralph, if you um, since maybe you don't know how we work here, we, you know, we have these regular um, experiencer meetings um, about once a week, and that they're totally anonymous. And so folks can come on. We usually cap it at about twelve people, and we read an opening statement that basically says, you know, keep this to yourself, and um, you know, we'll will not talk about what goes on here outside of the room. And then experiencers are able to talk to each other. And it's so far been going beautifully, just beautifully, in my opinion. We're very honored to have a great guest with us today, Ralph Blumenthal. For more than 45 years, Blumenthal reported for the New York Times as Texas correspondent and Southwest Bureau Chief, arts and culture news reporter, investigative and crime reporter, foreign correspondent in West Germany, South Vietnam and Cambodia, and Metro and Westchester correspondent. He notably co-authored the recent series of groundbreaking New York Times articles on the secret Pentagon program to investigate UFOs with Leslie Kane and Helene Cooper. He led the Times Metro team that won the Pulitzer Prize for breaking news coverage of the 1993 truck bombing of the World Trade Center. Ralph earned a Guggenheim Fellowship a Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism Alumni Award, and the Nyman Foundation's Worth Bingham Prize for Distinguished Investigative Reporting. Since 2010, he has taught journalism in the suburb program of Phillips Exeter Academy in New Hampshire, and was named Distinguished Lecturer at Baruch College, where he taught journalism and currently oversees historic collections in the Newman Library Archives. He lives in New York City with his wife, Deborah, who's a children's book writer and novelist. Ralph has written and co-authored seven books on organized crime and cultural history. His most recent book is The Believer, Alien Encounters, Hard Science, and the Passion of John Mack, published by High Road Books of the University of New Mexico Press. Ralph, it's great to have you here. Jay, thank you so much for inviting me. Privileged to meet all of you. Now, I heard you started working on this book about maybe a decade or so ago. And of course, your bombshell front page story with Leslie and Aline, the A-tip story, with those three now world famous cockpit UFO videos, that initial New York Times story was just less than four years ago. So some people might be looking at this new book on John Mack and his research with experiencers, non-human entities, alien abductees and think you went from those cockpit videos and the tic-tac and worked your way up or out to this, when in some ways, maybe it was the other way around. Did your research into John Mack's work and having access to his records of experiencer cases, did that actually help light the fire? Did it help in your determination to get these big UFO stories published in the Times? 
Yeah, uh, in a word, uh, it certainly prepared the way. I mean, I wish it were only a decade, Jay. It was 16 years <laughs> um, that I've been working, I was working on the John Mack book, and it, it did play a part in, in, in this way. Um, I started on the John Mack book in 2004 when I was a correspondent in Texas, um, and I came across Passport to the Cosmos, uh, his second book, and it absolutely blew me away. I didn't know how famous he already was. I didn't know that he'd been on Oprah. He met with the Dalai Lama. I didn't know he won a Pulitzer Prize for writing about Lawrence of Arabia. I was gonna call him up for an interview. I thought he'd make a great interview with the New York Times, you know, a Harvard psychiatrist who's interested in alien encounters. And then of course I pick up the paper a few days later and finally been run over in London and killed. So I kept in touch with the family and that's really what started me off. Um, so my book really goes back to 2004. Uh, but in the course of researching the book, I, I, I ran into or contacted Leslie, who was, of course, Bud Hopkins' close companion um, um, for many years. And because, I was, because Bud Hopkins was the one who got John interested in alien abduction, um, I, uh, I did get to meet Bud, actually, and I interviewed him shortly before he died of cancer. Uh, but through Bud, I, I met Leslie, and she gave me access to some things that, that Bud had. Um, so Leslie and I had stayed in touch over the years. And Leslie, of course, wrote that great book on UFOs uh, called UFO, Pilots, Generals, and um, you know, uh, Go on the Record. That book came out in 2010. So um, there's a long roundabout answer to your question, Jay, but Leslie got me, told me in 2017 that she had just been to this meeting in Washington with Lou Elizondo and others uh, that revealed the existence of the secret Pentagon unit investigating UFOs. So that's the story we brought to the Times and I can go into detail on that. But anyway, I, I don't think I would have been as interested in the UFO story about ATIP if I hadn't already been deep into my research of John Mack, and and I, I had written a, um, um, a you know a, a story in Vanity Fair in 2013 that recapped my investigation of John Mack up till then I didn't I had just sort of basically started looking into his his papers and in doing interviews, but to answer your question more directly now I was primed to be interested in the UFO story because of my work on the John Mack book, but they were worlds apart because there's nothing in the, in the Pentagon stuff about uh, alien technology. They're not saying where, you know, these, these things, these objects come from, et cetera. So I, ha I have to be careful in my reporting for the Times not to go into any of the uh, alien encounters because that is much less proven uh, to the satisfaction of the Times, for sure, and to me, than the UFO um, sightings. You do such a deft job of, 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 and of course you do, with your long history uh, in terms of like uh, discernment, in terms of what's, what's going to kind of make the grade there. And, um, and that's, I'm sure that has a huge amount to do with why people trust you with things like say, going through John Mack's archives and having access to these private conversations and these case histories and things like this. 
Um, you know, there are so many fly on the wall moments in reading The Believer, where as the reader, you can't help but wish you were there, because it seems like he ran into half of everybody at some point, you know, Lawrence Rockefeller, Stan Groff, Oprah, Yasser Arafat, <laughs> Lily Tomlin, goes on and on. One really amazing meeting of the minds that you document a bit in the book is when Dr. Max invited to a secret conference on extraterrestrials that was held by the Dalai Lama in his inner circle. John Mack and the Dalai Lama speak, and you quote in the book that the Dalai Lama turned to Mack and said, what do you think? Hmm. And I think we have a lot to learn from each other, Mack replied, referring to aliens and humans. I think they connect with us to get knowledge of the heart and spirit and of us, but we learn from them that there is a spirit world. There's a universe beyond this narrow one. So one interesting thing there is that it seems like there is definitely some overlap at this conference, as one might expect, in looking at aliens and also what Buddhists and others maybe talk about as the subtle realms, that some of these non-human entities might be coming in or interacting from some other layer of reality. So you were able to go through the private documentation of this secret conference with the Dalai Lama. Did you find anything else from that conference that really blew your mind but couldn't make it into the book or maybe seemed too sensitive? Um, yeah, uh, um, it was very interesting. First of all, John uh, kept his own record. He, he brought along uh, one of his own people to record, to take notes on the conference. It was a secret conference, as you said. Uh, the Dalai Lama, who uh, has a very difficult relationship with China, of course, having fled Tibet. So the Dalai Lama was not eager to, uh, are we are we okay uh, with the connection? I'm seeing something here that I think you froze for a second. Did I go out? I don't, yeah, you went out for just a second. Well, let so me maybe... just say that John Mack had many experiences with with alien interference um, on a lot of his programs, and I have encountered the same thing. That I don't know whether it's uh, in, in internet instability or what. But uh, there is a whole history of gremlins interfering in these kind of programs. So let's start with that uh, and take it as a, as a matter of course that this does happen. It happens, in, you can get a technological explanation or you can say John Mack encountered it too. So uh, I just go with it. Um, but to, to get back to the question, um, uh, it was supposed to be a secret conference and John Mack brought his people along to transcribe it and it went for almost a week and there were uh, almost daily sessions, a lot of material. And I got access to those transcripts in John Mack's files. They don't exist anywhere else as far as I know. And I was kind of cautioned to be careful with these because I didn't get the Dalai Lama's permission to, to, to use them because I didn't think I needed to. I, you know, John Mack was there. And uh, this was a, you know, basically a transcript of, of their discussions. So I found that very interesting. Uh, the Dalai Lama uh, was really very open to these discussions of alien encounters because, as as you noted, um, he he comes from the you know the Buddhist uh, world where uh, the, the subtle realms they understand that uh, reality is more than the four corners of our you know three dimensions and time of our existence. There's something else going on, and um, so he was very interested in this. He didn't know much about the alien encounters that John Mack had come across, but he knew about 
uh, strange stories in, in, in Buddhist culture of penetration from the, the hidden realms into our, our so-called reality. So that's what made it so interesting that Dalai Lama was really open to this. Now, there were some people who brought up all kinds of things at this conference. There was a woman um, who was very interested in cloud formations and was trying to tell the Dalai Lama that there were hidden messages in the clouds. And I don't think he bought that. Uh, he said, sometimes cloud is just cloud. <laughs> but there were a lot of different uh, efforts to grapple with this phenomenon, which to this day, nobody understands. I mean, your members have had all these experiences, um, which, which you know, captivated John and, and me when I hear about them. But nobody knows where they come from, or you know why they come to you and not somebody else, and um, it remains a colossal mystery. Along those lines, were there some other incredible pieces of information you found in in John's archives in general that couldn't make it into the book? Anything well, in particular that comes to mind? Well, there were things that didn't make it into the book. You added that at the end. I was going to talk about some things that did make it into the book. Uh, because I start off the, the book really with the story of the 1992 conference at MIT, which is another thing that's not well known. In 1992, uh, some of the world's leading atomic scientists and psychologists, psychiatrists, folklorists, religion scholars gathered at MIT of all places to grapple with this phenomenon um, uh, to try to understand what was, what was behind it. Um, uh, but, but that story is in the book. And again, uh, MIT, um, Dave Pritchard, the atomic scientist who organized it at MIT with John Mack, put out a 630-page book two years later of these transcripts, which I say that every so-called skeptic and debunker needs to read before they write this off as mental illness or you know, sleep paralysis and all these pat explanations, which don't really go to the heart of it because a lot of these things, as you know better than anybody else, don't happen at night during sleep. They happen when you're driving your car or walking by yourself or you know, uh, fully awake. So anyway, so I tell that story in the book about the MIT conference. Um, there were stories I got in the course of researching the thing that I didn't put into the book because they were very private. Um, they were sensitive. Um, um, you know, as you know, a lot of people have these experiences and they're not, e not eager to talk about them. Uh, they, will, they will talk anonymously. Um, what I was actually surprised about is how many people did agree to, to be public. I mean, um, Randy Nickerson, for example, um, uh, you know, uh, Peter Faust, uh, a lot of people have come forward very bravely and endured a lot of ridicule in the process. Um, to come out on the record, but there are others. I mean, I met with one experiencer who's in John Mack's book, uh, the first book, um, who was desperately afraid of being identified. And he made me swear and, you know, all kinds of things not to disclose his identity. And um, so, yeah, there are things I found out that I didn't put in the book, um, personal things about John that I didn't think were appropriate. Yeah, I, I appreciate that discretion, especially with regard to experiencers' identities and anonymity and coming forward, all of those considerations. That's incredibly appreciated. Uh, speaking of uh, people that have come out as experiencers, uh, it'd be wonderful to hear from uh, Stuart Davis. 
Thank you for being with us, Ralph. This is a great joy. Uh, great appreciator of your work over all these years. In diving into the believer and in having you here today, one of the things that's been forward in my mind and curiosity is what the strangest experience of your life has been. Take a few minutes. I don't know if it's something you've reflected <laughs> on much or anticipated, but I'm sure curious about it. I wonder what it was and, and what its impact has been over time. How difficult was it to metabolize or integrate whatever it may have been? And how has it changed you? Well, as you know, Stuart, we, we Times reporters are not uh, used to talking about ourselves. All our training is to keep ourselves out of the picture. Um, but I, I will share something that, that happened to me uh, very recently. First of all, I, uh, I have never seen a UFO. I have never been, never gone through an abduction. I've never encountered alien beings like John. Um, he, he thought for a while it was disappointing uh, that he hadn't. Um, and I have a little thing in the book where he talks to uh, one of his experiencers at, um, uh, in Newport uh, at that gathering uh, every year um, at Ann, um, um, I forgot, you know, Ann's house in Newport. Anyway, uh, and he said to this experiencer, you know, how come I never see one? I can't. You know? And she said, well, maybe you're not patient enough, John. They, they got a big kick out of that, that he was so impatient. Anyway, the truth is, I, so I have not had that kind of an experience. But um, less than a year ago, I was writing up a um, um, uh, Robert Bigelow, the, the, the uh, you know, space scientist uh, and anomaly, anomaly uh, researcher billionaire who has a new contest going now on afterlife experiences and the best evidence of an afterlife, which I wrote up in the New York Times. And I was writing that story. He put up a million dollars actually as a reward for the best evidence of survival of consciousness, okay? So I was writing up that story in the New York Times and at about 5.30 in the morning, I was lying in bed thinking about the story and what I was gonna say. And suddenly there was a tremendous explosion. I jumped out of bed, my wife was wakened, the dog jumped up and it turned out the window of my terrace door, 12 stories up over the street had exploded. And um, whether it was a temperature inversion or it wasn't a bird because there was no bird that hit the window that I could see, it wasn't a pebble because a pebble wouldn't be 12 stories up. So, so, something happened. The window exploded. It shook me up a lot. Um, and I thought later that, you know, when I was writing the book too, I used to get like down, downloads of information during the night. Either my mind was working overtime or I was getting information from somewhere saying, put this in, don't forget this. So to answer your question, I've had some strange experiences in writing this book, quite apart from the synchronicities that I talk about, how my path, it turned out, crossed with John Max and his family members in, in, in some strange ways um, that Carl Jung would appreciate. <laughs> um, but I couldn't explain. Like one time I was trying to track down his John Max cousin who had some important biographical information. He was elderly. 
and uh, I, I couldn't find him. And when I finally found him, he was living across the street from me. <laughs> so I just had to cross the street to find him. <laughs> um, so Terry Liebman, uh, who, whose family founded the Rheingold Brewing uh, Brewery. Anyway, so to answer your question, yeah, I've had strange, and I, and I happen to, to believe in spiritual dimensions that we don't understand. I do believe that. Uh, that there are things we don't understand um, and can't explain given our current knowledge of, of, of physics or, you know, uh, science. Um, but uh, I haven't had the conventional experiences that, you know, many of your members have had, the so-called core narrative and that kind of thing. Um, why, I don't know, neither did John Mack. And a super quick follow-up, how do you interpret the exploded window at this point, reflecting back on it? Well, you know, it, uh, first of all, the guy who came to fix the window said maybe there was a temperature difference in the, between the glass, you know, the two panes of glass. But why it would happen while I was in bed thinking about, uh, you know, survival of consciousness and life after death, th that moment the temperature chose to <laughs> exert its pressure uh, is is interesting. Um, um, I, I think we do get messages uh, from from other realms. Uh, I do believe that. Um, uh, I've had, you know, as I said in writing the book, I would I would get messages to make sure about this, or you know, keep your eye on this. And um, I, I, of course, I can't prove uh, that it comes from anywhere supernatural. Let's say. But um, um, I, I do believe there are things we don't understand, that, that our knowledge of, of, of quote, reality uh, is, is, is faulty. Um, and and uh, so we don't know a lot of things. So physics, you know, physics is making great leaps into the, into the unknown. They're finding out a lot of strange things about the universe. But 95% of the universe is still unexplained and unknown between dark matter and dark energy. They just don't know what makes up the, the energy and the mass of the universe. Uh, they found one particle, the Higgs boson, a few years ago, one particle after trillions and trillions of, of experiments underground. Um, so you know, they, there's hints about you know, different strange aspects to the universe. So they don't know. Um, and uh, so I like to keep, obviously you keep an open mind. That's really interesting. Thank you for being forthcoming. I know it's not your first nature as a New York Times writer to share your own first person subjective experiences, but I think they are a point of great interest for a lot of us here in the community. So I'm really appreciative of that. And I'll just do one Quick follow-up, which is around the RAL school. We talk about what it takes to punch through the membrane of our existing constructs and interpretations and the somewhat phlegmatic nature of our culture and its slow-moving nature when it comes to change. It seems like if there would have been an event that could have changed the world in terms of, wow, we're not alone. You talked about how many of the PAT responses and interpretations just don't stand up, whether it's sleep paralysis, some sort of 
new psychopathological delusion. And this is a great instance of not only do they not hold up, but how do you account for dozens and dozens of kids on this playground? And as you go into the book, there's actually many events on the front and the back of this as well. It was a much broader radius, that being perhaps the epicenter that has continued to resonate forward in the coming decades. But in reading about that and John's central position in that event, I wondered how it feels for you doing such groundbreaking work in the times in the most recent years, I would say arguably as much or more than anything, your work in the times has moved the ball with this enigma. How much is one question I would like to ask you, how much do you feel the ball has moved? And when you look back at REL and you feel what you feel around all of these witnesses in broad daylight, having face-to-face encounters with these entities. Do you feel dispirited? Like, wow, if that didn't change things, what will it take? Or does that increase your resolve? Does, do you have the kind of personhood that's like, you know what? Damn it, I'm really sinking my heels in now. And I'm just in here for the long haul. Which oh. way does that land for you? <laughs> A lot of good questions there, Jay, all together. First of all, let me talk about the Ariel School because that, that is, is an important part of the book. It, it's a very important case. It's really uh, that along with the Betty and Barney Hill uh, abduction or abduction experience are really landmark cases. Um, Ariel is particularly important because it concerned children. And John Mack was particularly influenced by the cases that concerned children because uh, children as young as two were not um, fabricating stories based on movies they had seen or books they'd read um, uh, or publicity that they wanted to get. Uh, there's a, a part in the book I talk about a two-year-old child who was lying in his crib at, uh, making his, his little dog fly in the sky and said, doggy, fly in the sky. And his mother, who was an experiencer, asked him, you know, what, what, what are you saying? And he said, little man, take me into the sky. I fly in the sky. So John was very influenced by that, and he thought this two-year-old is not influenced by the cultural milieu. So similarly, Ariel, where he went um, with Dominique, his, his girlfriend at the time, um, and, he, and he got these interviews on tape, which I, which I have, um, uh, these children were eight, nine, ten, uh, and they were very articulate, and they just told John what they'd seen. Sixty out of the, you know, three hundred kids had seen this this craft land and described two beings uh, that interacted with them through their eyes, sort of hypnotically through um, nonverbal communication, let's say, through their eyes. And these kids were getting messages about the planet and all that. And the kids later drew pictures for John and for the school, and the pictures were all very similar. And the stories were all similar, although not completely identical, by the way, which is another thing that John found very compelling, that the stories were not, it was not like somebody was reading off a script and let's all agree to tell this story. The stories had an infinite variety of very strange detail that you, that you couldn't imagine making up. But anyway, there was a core a consistency to the stories that he found very persuasive. And, and that's what these kids were telling. They all saw, they all, I mean, the 60 who happened to be at recess that day um, and experienced this. And by the way, they're now grown up, these kids. 
because it happened in 1995, I believe, or four. So uh, what is it, you know, um, 25 years later. And now there are documentaries. Randy Nickerson has done one. There have been others interviewing these these former kids, now grown-ups, looking back on their experience, and they think it's one of the form most formative things in their lives. It, they, they never forgot it, for sure. Um, anyway, so th that is really one of the most important cases and the best testimony to the actual reality of this phenomenon, which everyone outside it has a very hard time believing because there's no proof that anybody can deliver, unlike with the UFOs, and your question deals also with my reporting uh, today, and that at least has produced some physical evidence that we can grab onto. There are the Navy videos uh, and, and the Navy and the um, aircraft and the radar on the ships did get images and thermal imaging of these objects, quite apart from the um, observations of the, the pilots who are the most highly trained observers we have in this country millions of dollars of training and equipment that you can't say these guys are crazy because they are operating these incredibly sophisticated aircraft and they've seen these things too. But anyway, quite apart from the human observation, they have been recorded. So that's a big step forward. And the report that came out in you know June 25th, the UAP report, uh, for the first time that I'm aware of, the government says these things exist. These things exist physically. We don't know what they are, where they're coming from, who's behind the wheel, what they want with us, but there's something there. It's not fly specks on the windshield. It's not the planet Venus. <laughs> it's not marsh gas. You know, all the things that have been trotted out by the government uh, disingenuously or, you know, for whatever reason over the years. Um, so now these things exist. But we're not there with, with aliens yet, um, uh, whether we ever will be. So... Uh, you know, what we have is the anecdotal accounts of experiences like yourselves, um, which are very difficult for non-experiences to process. Um, so that, but, you know, I mean, I, I sense in your question, you know, you're trying to compare my reporting on the UFOs for the Times with the other research I did into uh, experiencers. And uh, it's a different order of magnitude, really, in terms of, of reporting. Um, the uh, UFO uh, accounts are, are, are based, as I said, in, in large part on, on um, actual physical uh, detection, ma uh, measurement, um, and, uh, and so that sets them apart. Am I depressed that we're not, we don't have full disclosure yet? No, it, it's a long process. I, I don't think uh, it's going to be quick, uh, but you got to figure where we came from. Just a few years ago, the government was, you know, um, denying that these things existed or that there was any importance to them, you know, uh, uh, telling fake stories that these things were weather balloons or, you know, mental illness or the planet Venus. So <clears throat> now for the government to say in a report, these things physically exist, that's a huge step forward. So I'm not discouraged. I too want to thank you so much for being here, Ralph. This is really a pleasure and it's just lovely to have you here. Um, so I want to ask you a question about the, um, you wrote a, a really wonderful uh, in-depth article for Vanity Fair in, in May, 2013. And it was called Alien Nation, 
have humans uh, been abducted by extraterrestrials? And I just, um, it's interesting because when I found that article um, a while ago, it was a couple of years ago, I found it and I have met several abductees slash contactees who saw the article um, at the time as like this um, real watershed moment um, for experiencers. And they actually believed that um, that article should have uh, sort of wrenched open the doors for, for disclosure as they you know, saw it um, at that time. Um, but afterwards, these particular experiencers felt really disappointed that the mainstream media um, didn't really take that article and run with it um, at all. And so I'm wondering if you feel that that article was just too, too much ahead of its time. Um, was the giggle factor just too rampant? Or do you think um, action was actually taken within the mainstream to sort of quash that story? I, I remember there was some fallout on Vanity Fair about that, but I don't remember exactly what the fallout was. Um, no, the, the fallout that you may be remembering, um, Kirsten, thank you for that, um, is um, I didn't fully understand an anecdote I put in at the end, and I corrected it in the book. Um, but um, uh, let me take that question apart a little bit. Um, again, I'm not disappointed that the Vanity Fair piece didn't uh, change minds uh, dramatically. Uh, uh, the more I learn about this phenomenon, the more I know how difficult it is. And as many of your members know, uh, I tried recently to, to do a story um, about experiencers for, for the New York Times and for a lot of reasons, including the fact that the people who were behind this story, my editors, um, left for other reasons in, in the course of this between the long time it took to do the article and, um, and run it, uh, people moved on and I lost my champions. And then some skeptics, more skeptical voices emerged and they, why are we running this? And P.S. the piece is, has never run to this day. Um, so, um, uh, but, but I know how difficult it is and you know better than I know uh, how difficult it is to, 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 to get credence for your stories. Um, so when I wrote the story in Vanity Fair, it was really a, a the, the information I had so far. Uh, I was working uh, you know, hard on the John Mack book, but um, it was really in the middle of my research and I hadn't gone through all the documentation yet. And I had, I had a lot to learn and I had a lot, I hadn't met all the experiences myself yet. Um, so um, uh, it was a work in progress as I like to describe it. I mean, I was very proud of the piece. I thought Vanity Fair, did a really nice job in, in putting it out online with great pictures, uh, but I, I didn't expect it to change the culture overnight. It's just too, it's too difficult. Um, it's a leap. The problem is that the people who've had these experiences know that they're absolutely real to them, that they're, you know, not, it's not a dream, it's not a nightmare. It's absolutely something that happened on in some level of reality that they can't explain. And people who have not had this experience cannot understand it because they haven't had it. So they say, oh, they're making it up or they, you know, dreaming or they, they're looking for publicity. All the reasons that John Mack discarded that we know are not relevant, but to outsiders, that's the way they explain it. Um, so the, the thing that, that you may remember about the Vanity Fair piece um, 
at the end, I told a story um, about one of John's close associates um, who he, he appeared, I, I tell this at the end of the book. There were people who say after John was run over and killed in 2004 in London, that he appeared to them, or his spirit appeared to them with, with various messages. Um, and he was, since he was investigating life after death, it's kind of poignant that they would seem to feel his presence after he was killed, that he returned with a message. So here was the story. Um, according to, uh, to one of his people, um, uh, John appeared to her and um, he said, um, it's not what we think. And she was totally taken aback because um, she thought that, you know, after all the work they had done on abduction, here was John Mack coming from, you know, beyond the grave to say, it's not what we think, like what else could it be? And then her husband died and she, and he appeared to her, she told me, and uh, his message to her was, it's not what we think. And she didn't know what to make of that. What's not what we think. So her husband apparently was talking about death. It's not what we think. But John, she thought was saying that the alien experience is not what, but anyway, she didn't know. And that was the, the, the thing in Vanity Fair I didn't quite uh, get, uh, but I cleared up in the book. But it, it only compounded the mystery. I mean, every time you think you're getting close to an answer, <laughs> the answer recedes, as you know better than me. Um, so anyway, I, but I found it fascinating because it just, you know, got me thinking about, you know, the, the, the enormity of the mystery we're confronting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it, it's exactly what you say. It does. It retreats. It, it messes with you just a little bit more when you think you've got something figured out. It is quite ironic and comical in that way. Um, but, you know, that one thing about that article that, that's just occurring to me right now as you're as you're answering is that during that time that I found that article, I think was the first period of time when Jay and I were putting together experience experiencer groups on Richard Dolan's site. And these were via Zoom. This may have been several months before that, that I found that article. And I just have to say it was, it came by at exactly the right time because there's information in that about how the experiencers met and that kind of thing that actually helped formulate what we do here now. So um, it's a great article and it's a great article to keep referring back to. It's kind of a wonderful, it's a wonderful time capsule. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. That was a wonderful response, Ralph. And I, I appreciate you being candid about um, the nature of that, uh, that experience or article that, that you were working on. It's, it's great. I to haven't given that. up on it. I mean, I'm hoping that I, you know, I, I made other, you know, by the way, you should know that um, after uh, it got rejected by the Times, I have uh, talked to other publications and I've not had much success. It's a very difficult sell. Um, I, it's a hostile environment out there in, in, to a large extent. Um, I don't have to tell you, you know, the, the skepticism in, in the society at large over your stories and the difficulty of persuading people what is absolutely, you know, real to you, um, uh, persuading other people. And, um, and the mainstream media, there's a lot of resistance. And I only want to put this in a place where 
uh, you know, would, it would make some difference, not just put it out online, which I could do. So, but I have not given up and I'm hoping to still find a home for it, but it is not easy. Totally understood. And, um, and I, 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 I appreciate your efforts and I know that our general community absolutely appreciates your efforts that way. Um, you're, you're a hero for even trying to do that. And along, along those lines, um, you and you and Leslie, also with your notable collaborator, Helene Cooper, um, you've done such groundbreaking work getting the anomalous ball, maybe it's shaped like a tic-tac, further down the mainstream field than just about anybody. Um, whether it's getting the news out about the secret ATIP program at the Pentagon, those three cockpit UFO videos, or even more recently floating a serious reference to the possibilities of retrieved materials from these UFOs, you've succeeded in getting a bit further with such re regularity that some people have almost come to expect it. In fact, with this book, it seems you're taking a really significant topic, uh, John Mack's work with experiencers, alien abductees, and presenting it as this node. You have the node of your UFO stories for the times with Leslie, and kind of like her UFO book or surviving death, you're putting this other note out there and patiently waiting for people out there to connect these dots. Does that seem like a fair read to you? Yeah, that's, I haven't heard it described that way before, but that is interesting. I try to keep the node separate uh, because um, I know, uh, you know, try, uh, I found basically my experience with that experiencer article, it was not easy to get that in the New York Times. And as I say, um, I want to keep them separate because it's really one step at a time. Um, the UFO reporting is based really on one set of circumstances. The experiencer stories are a different order of magnitude and much, much harder to, uh, to get into the times. And I don't want people to confuse the two. Um, so um, uh, the, the, your image of the nodes is a good one because the nodes are separate they may be connected on some level, we don't know. But uh, for example, I make a whole point when I talk about the UAP report uh, and talking about our UFO reporting that there is no reference to alien spacecraft and that they don't know what they, the government, the Pentagon is not characterizing uh, these objects, th these, um, these things that are physically real uh, it's not characterizing them in any way to say that they have, you know, they've come from a different part of the cosmos. They've, you know, they've traveled far. Uh, they're under intelligent control. They don't know any of that. Um, um, so I, I try to keep that, you know, very separate. Um, so, um, uh, and I, I, you know, and I think the Times understands that. They've been, you know, good. They don't, uh, uh, you know, tr try to lump me with one story or another story, and I don't try to promote the book uh, with my UFO stories, you know, because it's, it, it's different. You have to, as I say, one step at a time. I appreciate that. And I, I can see you kind of coming at it from, from both ends that way. Um, you know, just this week, Congress is calling for the, a permanent office to address UAP phenomena um, as part of the National Defense Authorization Act. Um, and, you know, some people online are, are questioning, you know, is this just going to be Project Blue Book, Chapter 2, or something like that? And, of course, this office, this, this situation is, 
is is partly happening because of public pressure that that came about because of you and Leslie and Helene's initial article in the series that you and Leslie did after that and the work of Chris Mellon and Lou Elizondo and such. Um, do you have any comment or any thoughts on that on that office? Do you have any reason to feel optimistic or to wait and see about that? Well, I, uh, it, you know, uh, you're absolutely right. The last week has brought an interesting development. They are apparently creating this new office that will leapfrog uh, the UAP task force and create a, a um, maybe a, a larger, more powerful, prestigious office um, to investigate. So I, I, I know that Lou Elizondo thinks it's a big deal. Um, and uh, so that, that is progress. I think that's, that's very important. Um, I gotta tell you that the internet, it can be a, a, a great hindrance and, 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 a, uh, and an advantage. It, it provides leads. It sets out information that is worthy of, uh, you know, following up for serious reporters, but there's such a level of background noise of chatter on the internet that can get in your way. When Leslie and I were working on the um, uh, retrieved material story, uh, we were hampered by the amount of speculation uh, that, oh, the Times is gonna break a huge story about this, and this is what the Times is working at. Times is working on materials, and it really got in the way um, um, there were people who were mischaracterizing our research, who got a little piece of it. They found out we had talked to somebody. Um, they would put that out on the internet, you know, and uh, it really got in the way. And I got kind of annoyed about it um, because we weren't really allowed to pursue the story methodically and quietly the way reporters like to pursue investigative stories. You don't want a crowd watching you and commenting on your next steps. And this is this is where they're heading and this is what they're going to break. Or, you know, so it got it really it was it was uh, it, it made it much more difficult. And I said that on programs. I said that it, it was a disservice to to our reporting um, and made it all the more difficult. Um, and I'm not telling you anything you don't know when I tell you that the internet is the Wild West. It's a hodgepodge of people with different agendas. There's disinformation, there's uh, misinformation, uh, there's good information, there's all kinds of stuff out there. And it, it's very difficult to sort through for an ordinary person, as well as a you know, news professional. So you don't know what you're getting on the internet. And, um, you know, people are putting out, I get, I get it all the time. I get people sending me videos. Hey, I saw this object. What do you think? I said, I can't, I don't know. I can't judge it based on your video with a cell phone. Um, I have to know, you know, uh, all kinds of details, but I don't have the means to analyze these, these videos. So, um, uh, it's very hard to judge the quality of information on the internet. That's why we take such care at the New York Times to, to, to identify our sources. And by the way, none of our stories in the Times relied on anonymous sources. The pilots were on the record. We named them, we used their pictures. Uh, we had documents, we had Lou Elizondo's service record. So when, it, you know, when people later try to uh, undermine him and say he wasn't, he was never really head of ATIP, or we had his, uh, his um, uh, uh, commendations, uh, you know, as an intelligence officer for his work at the Pentagon. So we had all that documentation, but um, on the internet, a lot of that stuff is not there. So you don't know what you're getting. 
Along the lines of, of this, this intrigue and the different agendas and misinformation and disinformation and things like that, Stuart had a great question connecting some of the dots between two different themes of your reporting. Ralph, uh, I know that you've written a lot about organized crime, and I wonder if you've found any salient similarities between the organized crime world and the world of UFOs, the black world, the subterfuge that perhaps they may have in common in some ways, but also how they may be distinct. Uh, you're a rare figure that's gone deep in two of those, as Jay was referencing, nodes. I wonder what you can tell us about how they compare and don't. Whoa. Um, well, I usually make a very obvious comparison that my reporting uh, that, that my background has been very down to earth, literally, um, no, no pun intended. Um, uh, you know, dealing with the mafia and Nazi war criminals and stuff that's really well, well grounded in the, the evils, let's say, of, 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 our, uh, of our reality. Um, so that when I took up this, these stories about UFOs and, and experiencers, um, uh, I was not somebody who was gullible or easily, you know, uh, misled, let's say. I, you know, I, I like to, to, maybe this sounds self-serving, but um, the, the credibility that I got from my reporting about political corruption and the mafia and the Holocaust and all that, I think, I hope, um, adds credibility to my reporting on other things that are, could be more difficult to establish, like UFOs and alien experiences. Um, so I, I it, it, um, you know, the, the government has been um, disingenuous at times uh, with a long history of disinformation on the UFO question, uh, put out fake information. It, it told people there was nothing to it. It'll, you know, just move on, forget about it. You, you didn't see anything. You saw the planet Venus um, and the government denied the existence of organized crime for a long time, Hoover, uh, wouldn't acknowledge uh, the mafia because um, he was too interested in chasing communists. Uh, uh, so in that sense, the government had an agenda then, you know, it had an agenda, had long had an agenda to downplay the UFO uh, story. Um, but I don't see too many, uh, you know, other, too, too many similarities um, uh, in that. I mean, I'm very proud of my mafia reporting. But that was something I, you could get your hands around. There were actual recordings, uh, you know, there were eyewitness accounts and this and that. So um, a lot of that is missing uh, when you get into these much more problematical areas of, of UFOs and certainly with the experiencer accounts. You know, I see a question in the chat um, that uh, I'm, I'm happy to address because it, it, it really uh, strikes a bell with me. Uh, sure. Uh, about John Mack, uh, what would he say about the book? And uh, um, how did the book end up the University of New Mexico Press? So that's a question I'm very happy to answer. Um, yeah, because this has come up before. Some friends of John Mack complained early on that you call your book the believer, and that's a pejorative term in our world. You know, you're just a believer. But, um, uh, and I get that. And I, I chose the title deliberately because, as I say at the end of the book, uh, he was a believer. He believed in social justice. He believed in, in break, breaking boundaries. He believed in taking 
courageous steps against you know the Harvard establishment. Um, but he he wasn't gullible in the sense that he believed anything that came his way. He 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 uh, uh, chased down these stories and. Uh, anybody who needs to know more about John Mack should just read Abduction, the 13 case studies that form the core of his book. And he really expends tremendous effort and energy and research to um, get to the bottom of these stories. Um, you know, people, ordinary people, as you know, there's nothing distinguishing experiences. Uh, they're ordinary people, except for the experience that they had. They're housewives and cops and politicians and children and men, women, you know, from all walks of life. There's nothing that explains the experiences that they had. And he, he uh, as, a, as a masterful psychiatrist, and I, this is one of the things I, I, I um, admired when in looking into his, his story, his history, um, he was absolutely brilliant as a psychiatrist, and he would home in on their stories and, and drill down and try to figure out what was it that might account for these different experiences. And he, he's, he's, he is he's very skeptical. Um, he tries to come up with an answer other than the answer that he ended up with, which is nobody knows, you know, other than what they said happened. There's no other explanation for what happened. Anyway, so that's why I call him the believer. And um, uh, I admire him very much. And I, <clears throat> I say that uh, he's really cast in the role of Joseph Campbell's hero in the hero's journey, somebody who is not willing to undertake the journey to begin with, who tries to evade it like Jonah and the Bible. And then God sends him on this mission and he has to go. And uh, he endures tremendous um, uh, hardships, uh, John Mack and then the hero. And in the end, he overcomes his, you know, hair-raising, uh, you know, crises and emerges with the truth for humanity. And, and that's why, uh, you know, as for why it ended up the University of New Mexico Press, I had trouble selling this book to a mainstream publisher. And I had one publisher who I thought was on my side. And in the end, uh, the publisher uh, wanted another kind of book, a skeptical book. And I wasn't willing to write a book that I, I didn't subscribe to, to, to attribute it all to, um, uh, you know, aberrate, mental aberrations or anthropological explanation. Uh, there is no explanation that I could find, that John Mack could find. So the University of New Mexico Press, obviously, is in the right part of the country. They know Roswell. They, a lot of the, um, you know, uh, encounters uh, happened around nuclear sites in Nevada. Uh, the West is a very fertile area for this, this field, as you know, um, and I found a very willing and, and uh, professional publisher who was very enthusiastic. And I'm very happy I ended up with him. So that's why the book ended up there. Thank you so much, Ralph, for answering Mark's question. Uh, Kristen, I think you've got another question from the member mailbag. I do. This is from our wonderful member, Kimberly Lafferty. And she says, uh, Ralph, thank you so much for your work. Has your worldview changed since the beginning of your work with anomalous topics? And if so, how? Yes, I mean, it evolved uh, because, um, uh, you know, the more I, I read about these cases that John Mack pursued and that I pursued, uh, you know, sometimes independently because they were not in his book, um, 
uh, I cannot explain the nature of these experiences. Um, I've, I've looked for an, the explanation. I, I don't have the background John Mack had in psychiatry, but uh, I cannot find an explanation, nor can any of the people who, uh, the so-called experts who I've, I've researched, um, nobody has an answer. Nobody has a good answer. Um, so to, to answer your question directly, yes, my worldview has, has changed, evolved. I always grew up kind of spiritual. I always thought that there was something out there that we can't explain. Um, but uh, the more I have looked into it, the more I realize that there's a lot we don't understand um, about the nature of reality. And it, it certainly uh, our understanding of, of the physical world has changed. And, and physics is now adding you know, new dimensions to that almost daily. They're finding out that, you know, uh, objects can influence each other separated for long distances, that people have powers that they can't explain, you know, the remote viewing and the psi powers and precognition. Um, so th there is something to that. We don't understand what it is that it certainly hasn't been explained. And the so-called skeptics are very quick to say, well, this has been discredited, but it hasn't been discredited. And nobody knows. The remote viewing, and I got to know Russell Targ, um, and um, uh, it's very strange. <laughs> it's very strange. So uh, I'm much more open now to, to uh, understanding what we don't know. Aha. Interestingly, um, I just got back from an a international remote viewing conference that oh. was upstate New York, and I went with uh, our member, Linda, uh, Linda White, who's here tonight. And um, it was absolutely fascinating, Ralph. I mean, it was I, I, I have yet to tell Stuart and Jay and all the members how it went in all the great detail. But um, but incidentally, I went to school with Russell Targ's kids uh, oh. in Palo Alto and um, I, I didn't know them personally. I, I know you've talked about Elizabeth and Elizabeth's um, relationship with, um, with John Mack, which is fascinating to me. And I wanna get more into that since I was on the same, you know, schoolyard with her back in the day. Wow. Um, yeah. Um, and it's funny because when I met Russell Targ and some of the members have heard this story before, when I met Russell Targ um, at one point, I mentioned to him that during elementary school in the schoolyard, one of the big topics of conversation between us kids was ESP. And we were really into it. And I remember the look on his face when I told him that, because he was like, what school did you go to? And ah, <laughs> oh, I think you might've known my kids. <laughs> oh, you know, I got to tell you a story. You just reminded me of something. Um, my wife and I had dinner with Russell and his wife a few years ago. He had a favorite restaurant in Grand Central in, in Penn Station, <laughs> right called Tracks, <laughs> right by the tracks. He liked this restaurant. So we went there and um, I put him on the spot. I said, Russell, let me ask you a question. I said, tell me right now, what is in my wife's bag? And she kind of had a big shop, you know, big handbag with her. Yeah. So he takes out a pad and he draws a figure and uh, she had her flip flops in the bag and he drew the outlines of a flip flop. I mean, that, that kind of amoeba shape. And my wife and I were both blown away. Now he He's not a himself, as you know, he's not an expert remote viewer. It's a talent that everybody has to an extent, but some people have it really well developed, but everybody has it. And uh, he never held himself out as a great, you know, 
um, you know, remote viewer, but sure enough, he, he was able to produce this image and it was like, wow. That's incredible. And, yeah. you know, it's so interesting because that was like the main, the main truth for through line at this conference was anybody can do it. And it, you know, when they did the exercises with groups, absolutely. It was amazing what people came up with. Incredible. Right. Thank you. Stuart's got a question from another member. This is from Exo Academia. He's host of the excellent Point of Convergence podcast. He's also a member here on the Experiencer Group. And he asks the following, Ralph. Did John try to take into account the issue of how one's general pre-existing psychological response to the unknown, i.e. whether it was greeted with hope, and possibility or fear and concern into his understanding of how people interpreted contact slash abduction experiences. So in other words, taking into account, for instance, how someone with a background where authority figures mistreated them might have a different knee-jerk reaction to an interaction with a supposedly sophisticated non-human intelligence, right. as opposed to someone who'd had a positive experience of this sort of earlier life. Did John take into account how one's pre-existing psychological response to the unknown factor? Yes. Does that make sense? He, yeah. He, yeah, it makes sense. He looked into that. He found absolutely nothing that could explain why some people um, had these experiences and others didn't. Nothing that predisposed people. He thought, I mean, there was one theory current at the time that rape victims were transferring their memories of their, their rape, their abuse at the hands of a family member or a stranger. They were transferring that to aliens. He found absolutely no connection. He said the people, the experiences he dealt with were completely normal in the sense that they had all these traumas in their background. Um, yes, they had suffered sexual abuse, they had suffered rape, they had suffered, uh, you know, um, all kinds of uh, you know, torments, because they were normal people. Everybody has uh, some, uh, you know, bad experiences in their lives, but they did, those things did not explain um, the experiences that they then vividly remembered, often consciously, but often also uh, with the aid of, of uh, relaxation techniques like hypnosis, which he used uh, to, to a point. Um, but uh, it's a common question. And it would be nice to say, yeah, there's a correlation between people who uh, see authority this way and then they transfer it and then they have, you know, they see alien authority and they make the connection. He found nothing of that kind. Um, so that's interesting. Uh, but these people were not ciphers. They had trauma in their lives, but nothing. Uh, but the trauma that they later experienced uh, was not the cause of their alien encounters. It was the result of their alien encounters. So that was the big um, message that, that he tried to get out, that these people were normal people. They had all the traumas of normal people. Um, and yet uh, the experiences that they were relating could not be possibly be explained um, by any of the usual explanations um, other than something happened to them that we don't understand. You know, I see a question in the chat here. What did John Mack see in T.E. Lawrence? 
Um, uh, I'm happy to deal with that because it's a question I like because I spend so much time in the book talking about his research into Lawrence. And he himself um, uh, saw a, a reason, John Mack being a psychiatrist, he was always trying to understand you know, things that were happening to him and why was he so interested in Lawrence. And he, he, he realized he was trying to emulate um, Lawrence in some way. Um, that he and Lawrence had some things in common. First of all, he found out that Lawrence was a very private person um, who was not a sadist or a warmonger. He was struggling with his inner life. And he always wanted to know what is the relationship between someone's inner life and, his, and a life of action. Um, so um, it was a struggle that he himself was going through, John Mack, because he had a an intellect, you know, he had a inner life. He was a very thoughtful, um, cerebral kind of person, and yet he also saw himself as a man of action. And he and Lawrence was the same way. So um, that was one thing, and um, he was able to uh, debunk some things about Lawrence. That as I said, he was not bloodthirsty. Uh, he he really shrank from the, the atrocities that his men committed in the war against the Ottoman Turks. Um, he, he was, you know, the leader of the tribesmen, looking for they were looking for freedom <coughs> from the Turks. Uh, they were rebelling, um, and they committed horror. There's horrible stories in in in. Um, Lawrence's book uh, and that, you know, Mac dealt with about what happened in those wars, horrible, sadistic things. But Lawrence was, that was not his thing, why he did it. And then Lawrence's own sexual perversions, which were interesting, his interest in being flogged for a, you know, as a punishment for something he, he felt guilty about. Um, so, you know, in, in a way it was a dry run for, for John Mac's later interest in alien abduction because he, he tackled um, Lawrence um, with, with the same uh, intellectual fervor and spirit of inquiry that he later applied to, to abduction. And it shows that he could be, and, and the Pulitzer Prize proves it, that he could be a superb uh, analyst and um, a um, researcher, an investigator, whether it came to aliens or, or to E. Lawrence. We have a question from our member, Sherry. Uh, assuming you share some of John Mack's fascination with experiencers, and that's clearly, clearly the case here, what questions do you feel compelled to ask of experiencers or people who claim contact with non-human entities? Well, I'm always looking for things that can verify the experience. Uh, I know they uh, tend to happen um, uh, to, to people uh, without witness, without, you know, witnesses uh, or good witnesses that the partner is switched off or they, you know, happen in a way where there's a minimum of, um, of physical evidence, which is one of the, that, the hallmarks of this whole phenomenon. It doesn't happen in a public way uh, with evidence scattered around. Um, it, it all, I mean, it's one of the it's it's one of the the, the hallmarks is that it, it it's it's hidden it's strange it's it's cloaked in a very peculiar way um, and it, it it doesn't happen in a way that invites outside um, corroboration so I'm always interested and I think Jay you and I talked about this you know who was witness to these encounters um, uh, at the time, you know, what, what fragmentary evidence was there that it was witnessed by somebody else that, you know, there's one story I tell from, from John's book 
that um, I find very compelling. And he found it very compelling. Uh, he, uh, among his experiences were uh, two girls who had a sleepover. Uh, during the night, uh, the, the mother of the, one of the girls who lived in the house went down to check on the girls who were having a sleepover and found them missing. And she totally panicked, uh, called out the police. The police searched everywhere because it was a terrible, you know, uh, a nightmare to find two girls missing from a sleepover. Um, and a few hours later, they turned up back in their beds. So now later, the girls remembered that they had seen a UFO outside the window and that they had had fragmentary memories of an abduction experience afterward. So this was one of the first and best cases that John Mack had of an outside witness, a mother, finding the girls physically absent at a time when they later retrieved an abduction experience. You know, very interesting. So um, I, I would be very interested in anything that corroborates these experiences. Sometimes, you know, it's the, the scars that can't be explained or the, um, uh, the missing pregnancies are very, very hard to uh, verify. I'm not aware to, of, of any cases of doctors, uh, you know, doing a complete workup and finding that yes, this pregnancy mysteriously disappeared. Um, maybe there are doctors who who verified that. Um, implants. There's always something that goes wrong. The implant disappears, or it turns out to be a made a biological material that's in the body. Maybe there are actual cases of implants. I haven't seen them. Uh, the cases, the write-ups. So I am always looking for, uh, you know, third-party verification and scientific reports. And those, of course, are the most difficult to come up with. I just wanted to weigh in on that because, um, because we, find, we hear from experiencers all the time this kind of crazy um, concept that people who are in groups who have these sightings, a bunch of them may have forgotten the sighting completely even though they were right there, or they don't want to talk about it at all. Or there's people who have seen, like we recently heard a story of someone who, um, you know, took a bunch of pictures of, of something and then forgot they even had the photographs. So found them later, much later. This happens all the time. So it's a very strange um, kind of still in that realm of like, we like this target keeps moving um, even when, and especially when we're trying to find physical evidence for, for these things. So yeah, uh, Jay, go ahead. I appreciate hearing that. Um, Stuart and I were just uh, giggling and passing notes on the side about who's gonna ask the next question. Um, and uh, uh, Stuart, Stuart was trying to get me to bribe him uh, to, <laughs> to ask, ask one of Sean's questions. Uh, did you what? Want, I, I don't know, we were just getting there. I think that's what the giggling was gonna okay. be about. <laughs> Giant stone coins of the Yap Islanders was what I was driving for, but I'll take nothing at all because I'm a big Sean S. Bjorn Hargens fan, as are many of us in this community who are great appreciators. And Sean S. Bjorn Hargens runs the Exo Studies website, Ralph. He has a, a, a long course, actually multiple courses. One of them, I believe, is a year long or so. Some of the folks here today have taken that course. Jay has been instrumental in it from its inception, I think. And so this is coming from Shauna's Bjorn Hargens, his question, what is your sense of John Mack's emphasis on the spiritual transformative subtle body aspects of the abduction phenomena versus Bud Hopkins more physical 
trauma, negative orientation, or David Jacobs, even more scary analysis of the imminent alien takeover, are all three seeing different, but in some sense, valid aspects of the abduction phenomena? Or does one seem more likely or accurate to you? It's a good question because uh, it, it puts the finger on the, the uh, differences between John and Bud and, and David. Um, and here's the best way I can answer it. Uh, in the beginning, John got his first information from Bud. And I think uh, he was bowled over by the letters that, uh, that uh, Bud gave him, the experiences. And um, John quickly gathered a group of his own experiences around him. And his first reaction was um, to believe in the literal nature of the abduction, um, which Bud always believed, and David believed even more that this was a devious plan to, you know, take over humanity. Um, I, I can deal with that in a minute, but um, I think John um, uh, always was troubled by the the difficulty of, 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 of nailing down, you know, the whole alien experience. And, um, and the more he, and I, I think I developed this in the book, the more he uh, looked into the um, nature of, of the anomalies, the more he saw them related to other mysterious things like uh, crop circles and eventually survival of consciousness. There were a whole bunch of mysteries that um, uh, couldn't be explained uh, and that, um, and I think uh, he realized that, um, first of all, the, the messages he was getting from some of his, the, the accounts he was getting from some of his experiences were that they were getting transformative messages um, from the beings, that they had to take better care of the planet, um, that, um, that there was a positive aspect to these um, abductions uh, that, that Hopkins and Jacobs weren't getting from their people, okay? So John uh, saw more positive aspects. So this, so this was kind of strange. So some, some of the critics later said, well, it's like the experiencers, you know, or the aliens parceled it out. Like, okay, you go to Bud Hopkins and you go to David Jacobs and we'll go to John Mack. Um, um, but they were kind of making fun. The truth is that John saw things uh, from his experiences that the others that Jacobs and, and um, Hopkins didn't, or at least not to the same extent, they didn't see that transformative aspect. They saw the alien encounters as basically uh, traumatic, uh, painful, evil almost, that there was some kind of an alien agenda to you know, create a hybrid race, uh, take over humanity. And, um, and John didn't get that from his people. Uh, now, was he more predisposed to a you know, more positive interpretation? That, 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 that is a very difficult question. And it's one that the Harvard committee, when they investigated him, you know, dealt with. Was he enabling people or was he reinterpreting the message because it was something more to his liking? Um, but it was clear that that was something that differentiated him from Hopkins and Jacobs. I think he he made a progression that they didn't make, uh, and and that uh, opened opened up his understanding more broadly to a whole uh, um, a, a more um, a wider look at this phenomenon 
to the point where some of his experiences complained later, John, you're, you're abandoning us. You know, you're questioning our reality. They were telling him, this really happened to me. You know, and if you, if you doubt that, then you're doubting me. And he was, and this happened at one of uh, Anne Cavalier's, uh, you know, last um, gatherings where John met some of his experiences. They were complaining to him that he was abandoning them because he was casting doubt on the absolute reality of these experiences. But I think he was just seeing them as uh, more general and, um, and not as literally as, as Hopkins and Jacobs. So uh, although he, he kind of reconciled with them uh, at the end, they, they, they made up. And, um, but, uh, but, but that's really the difference between them, that John was more dubious of the physical reality of these, or, the, or, the, or at least that they were happening in a reality we don't recognize. If I could do a super quick follow-up on that, do you think that it's fair to characterize John's perspective of it as being a both and? There is often a drive or pressure for researchers or even experiencers to locate themselves in one camp. This is physical, this is real, this is corporeal, or this is etheric, this is astral, this is subtle spiritual phenomena or ultra-dimensional. And it seemed sometimes perhaps that John was advocating that it could be both and, and that it's not necessary to collapse to either or. Yes, I think that's a very good- feel that's fair? I think that's a very good analysis. He did uh, think it was both. <laughs> um, he couldn't decide. Um, and he certainly, uh, he found no other explanation uh, for what these people had, had encountered other than what they said. So in other words, uh, nothing came to him as an explanation that would answer the questions as to what happened. So he was left with, well, I, I have no way to explain it other than what they said, but um, he also realized it was happening, uh, it seemed to be happening in, in another realm because it was not easily accessible to our physical reality. There were, there were no pictures of it, there was no uh, very few witnesses. Um, it happened in a strange kind of uh, twilight world where people's memories would be wiped and they wouldn't remember much of it, but they could get little pieces of it or they could retrieve it in relaxation techniques or hypnosis. Um, so, um, but I, I don't think he could decide. Uh, I think he was more um, certain of it in the beginning and less certain the more he went on in, in what realm this was happening in. If that, that's really the only way I can describe it. Yeah, Ralph, if... Above water is the public portion and below water is the private or the secret. How much of what you know or what you've been privy to even in all of these investigations and inquiry remains below water and why? Well, first of all, it's an interesting image you came up with because these things have been spotted going into the water, <laughs> uh, out of the water, which is one of the really mysterious things about this, that you know, people have an image of UFOs as operating in the atmosphere, but they've also been seen uh, by Navy pilots uh, entering and emerging from the water. So they are transmedia 
um, capable, uh, let's say, uh, which is one of the, really the most perplexing uh, aspects uh, of them. Uh, but to tell you the truth, I am not privy to some deep secret that I can't disclose to you. Uh, I don't know much more than what I've said in print. Um, there are a couple of things that, you know, I, uh, I've been told or I've seen that I haven't verified, but they're not really of um, of a uh, sensational nature that would change uh, everything I, I've, I've written publicly. So I, I'd hate to disappoint you all by, sa by saying, you know, I don't really know that much. Um, uh, there's no deep secret that I'm privy to that I can't, you know, tell you about. I'm learning about this as much as, you know, as I can quickly. I'm trying to get people on the record. Um, and as I said, um, a lot of the stuff about materials is classified. So, you know, we don't know. I've seen the same the stories are out there that we have reverse engineered crafts that, you know, um, uh, you know their hangars with UFOs stashed away. Um, I, I don't know that that's true. There's a lot of stories like that, but uh, I have no way of verifying them. And uh, as I said, the um, uh, it's, that's a very secret part of, of, of the government archives and information. What, how much we actually know physically about these craft, uh, if if any parts have been retrieved or a whole craft or whatever, uh, I don't know that any of that is true. Um, uh, but there's plenty of information on you know on, on the internet about it, but. Uh, not verified. Well, I think in one sense that could be felt to be encouraging because from a distance, people might imagine there's a great disparity between what you sift through and gather versus what you're able to publish and share or even speak to. And if I'm hearing you correctly, that's not actually the case, although there's a rigorous process of vetting in the New York Times and your work in general, you feel that on the whole, you have been able to share what you've been able to find. That's true. On the whole, I have. Uh, and as I say, if there's things that we get that are, you know, on the basis of rumor or on deep background or so, I can't use them. Um, I, I don't consider them verified. We, you know, we only want to print information where we can attach a name to it. Uh, so, um, you know, there's much too much reporting out of Washington, particularly where, you know, um, uh, anonymous sources are so, and people have lost faith in, in some of that reporting, and we don't want to contribute to that with, with UFOs, so. Thank you so much for, for coming. I've got, we've got one, one question here, and, uh, and we can leave with you with that. Um, at one point in your wonderful book, The Believer, um, you mentioned a line from John's father's funeral, an old Latin phrase that translates as, if you wish to see his monument, look about you. What do you see these days as John Mack's monument? Well, in truth, a lot of people have forgotten about John Mack. I like to think my book has brought him back, but I didn't know much about him when I started. And for all the, um, the, the popularity that he had, he was infamous as well as famous in his time, which is the 90s, really was the peak of his career. Um, uh, that has largely evaporated, I think. Um, it's In a way, it's good for me because I came up with something fresh to, to bring to the public about his life. They didn't know about him and I did it in my book. But the sad thing is that um, um, 
he didn't leave a lasting legacy that we can, that, that seems to be fresh and, and really popular today. So, um, so that's kind of the sad thing, the downside, that we haven't made a lot of progress. The field, the, the, the ridicule has tamped down the opportunities for research. Uh, people are afraid to, um, uh, to, to get into this field. I think Avi Loeb at Harvard, I was on a show with him recently, has been quite courageous in um, writing about this mysterious uh, uh, Oumuamua, this object that all the pictures, by the way, don't do it justice. <laughs> These are artist renderings that make it look like an asteroid. If anything, it's a light sail. It's a very thin a thing that is drawing solar power that is, if it is intelligent, intelligently controlled, it's the first intelligent object that crossed our solar system ever that we know about. And he, he faults the scientific establishment for being um, so rigid and negative and closed. Uh, he doesn't subscribe to alien abduction at all. Avi Loeb, he doesn't identify with John Mack. I've made that, he made that clear in the program we were on, but uh, he certainly thinks there's things to investigate in terms of uh, um, uh, hints of intelligent life in the universe. Um, so, um, but uh, I, I think it's, it's problematical today that we don't have uh, icons like that coming out uh, and, and, and trying to focus attention on this problem because it's a, you, you, the, the fact that your group is out there and many other groups like that is, is very interesting. And these people are having these experiences and no one's really paying attention outside the groups and that's what has to change. Thank you so much, Ralph. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for everything that you've done with uh, regard to your research and your work and what it does for experiencers of the anomalous. Um, it's, it's absolutely groundbreaking and it's so amazing for us. I mean, I know that it comes up so often, like how, like how that December, 2017 article or, or the vanity fair article or this or that, or the other thing, or this new book, how much, how much it starts conversations within families, within family groups, within our, between our loved ones. And it, and it, and it's enormously validating and, and it also helps ground uh, a lot of our experience in a, in a way that's absolutely amazing. So thank you so much for that. And thanks for the opportunity to meet all of you. Really, I, it's, a, it's a great pleasure. You're, you're very courageous to, to meet with me and, and I really appreciate your willingness to do that. And I think your stories are amazing. And uh, I want to continue to look into this and, you know, see what I can do to get this, these stories out there and understood. I think the, the chance that we'll figure out what's going on are kind of small in the, in the near future, but they are, are and this is what, you know, John Mack's main takeaway was, this is a legitimate mystery. This is not something that can be easily explained by debunkers who can pluck out an answer and say, this is what it is. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. And the sooner we understand that and devote serious research money to that question, I think the further along we're going to be. Mad props. I know you are strapped to the front of this great ship as it is thrust toward these crazy waves in this cultural sea. So I got a lot of respect for that. I love how you go about it. Thank you so much for your work. And thank you for being so generous with us here today. Well, thank you. A real pleasure. And I hope we can continue this. Regards to everybody.
Experiencer Group is a private gathering place for those who've had anomalous experiences, such as precognition, out of body, near death, clairvoyance, ghosts, UFOs, past life, lucid dreams, and more. Within the site, members can join groups specific to their interests and access original content, including exclusive sessions where you interact directly with important luminaries and ask them your burning questions. Members also have confidential meetups with others from around the world and get access to in-person events, exclusive podcasts, and video series. No trolls, no stigmas, just intelligent, deep people like you who've had extraordinary experiences. Go to theexperiencergroup.com to become a member.